0: Welcome to Reading Mission, a live book club podcast where we read some of our favourite books about mission, justice and social change together. My name is Mitch and with me is Emily.
1: Hello. Before we start, I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia and pay respects to elders past and present. We recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. So what are we reading tonight, Mitch?
0: Well, tonight we're diving into the second chapter of Credible Witness by Darren Cronshaw. So this chapter is titled Chaplains for Convicts, and in it, Darren has to work a lot harder to pull some worthwhile examples from the early history of Christian chaplains in the lands now called Australia. Chaplains with the First Fleet were some of the first Christian witnesses in Australia, but this is something of a mixed history. So we're going to see some of the worst and some of the best of Christian witness side by side. And ultimately, we're reminded that God is present in every moment of every day. So we're left to wonder why ministry as a vocation has sometimes been confined to the inside of churches. Before we dive into tonight's chapter, Emily,
1: what's your bright spot? So just this weekend, um, I went into the city. So the city being Sydney. And went to see the um, Van Gogh Alive exhibition because it had been ah. in Sydney, it had left and been all around and came back, and I was like, "Yes, I need to go and see this. I've only heard good things and I just need to see it even if it's so late in the game everyone's already posted all their sunflower photos. Um, <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, <laughs> so I went into the city and made the effort to go in on Saturday and see that, and my goodness, was it just a... Uh, What's the word to use? It was beautiful. Mm. It was heartbreaking just seeing mm. the the life of Vincent van Gogh through his art in such an immersive yeah. uh, fashion and seeing uh, his, I guess, journey and as yeah. he journeyed through life and became more... Um, mentally unwell and his, Mm. um, yeah, just his art by the end was similar but still so different to where he started and what he's known for Mm. in a lot of ways and just seeing, Mm. especially some of his self-portraits, the tortured, I I hate to say this cliche, but just very much like in his eyes, in all his self-portraits, it's like this there's a there's a torture and a torment and a turmoil. Mm. oh, how's that for alliteration? um
0: <laughs> not bad
1: <laughs> in yeah, in his eyes, and he's never truly looking at like he's always looking away a little bit, never truly looking at you um mm. yeah, and it was it was great, and I'm so glad I did it. I went in and I sat in there for a good hour hour and a half, moving around the room, listening to beautiful classical music and just seeing yeah, yeah these explosions of color and. Yeah, just, yeah, I guess part of the irony in of Van Gogh as well is he, he was never acknowledged for his greatness in his art until after he died. So, mm, mm. Um, yeah, but now he's revered as one of the greatest artists. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we've seen, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's so it's fascinating. Oh, it's very cool. Yes. Very cool show.
1: Yeah. So what about yourself, Mitch?
0: For me, uh not so not so reflective, not so um deep, but my wife and I adopted a dog.
2: Oh, I this mean that's pretty week. deep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, we have a new, new pet in our wow. house, a new member of our household. His name is Gus. He is a failed guide dog puppy. Oh, and no, he not failed. rehomed guide dog. Failed. failed. No, <laughs> oh, he is failed. Don't put that on shame. him. you will end up shame
2: with a
1: conflict. Shame on this family. you <laughs> will end up shame with a conflict. Shame on this family, Gus. Don't shame Gus. your, poor, your, your <laughs> poor dog child. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> have you, you've, seen, you've seen the- um, the old animated Disney Mulan. Um, oh,
1: yeah, shame on, this dis- dishonor on, on you. Goat dishonor on, your, on cow. your family.
0: Dishonor on your cow. <laughs> of
1: course,
0: that's how we feel about you, Gus. Oh,
1: so, don't say that to him. He'll he'll end up. No, weird, he's, trust the me. he's the best.
0: He's the best. And he's my little work buddy when I'm doing when I'm working from home. He's he's Aww. right down. He's sitting beside me right now, just lying on the ground. He's I'm not really disappointed that bed. he
1: you didn't have him a week earlier that he wasn't in your I know, area, and you didn't get to I meet him. Otherwise, I would have got lots of cuddles and pats. And-
0: I know, I know. Oh. We went and met him for the first time sort of immediately after we farewelled you from <laughs> staying at our place. It was cr- quite cruel.
1: <laughs> yeah, cruel and unusual punishments. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but that's been wonderful. That's been a lot of fun getting to know him and for him uh, getting to know us. And, yeah, hopefully he'll- uh, Stop crying first thing in the morning when he wants us to get up. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, let's get into it. <laughs> before we jump into the chapter properly, our topic of conversation tonight or our our example of a model of ministry that we can be inspired by, that we can learn from to an extent, as we'll sort of unpack, is the, the chaplain. Um, so, obvious question, Emily, where might people find chaplains?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the better question is where wouldn't you find a chaplain? Um, mm. Because I feel like in most places chaplains are a thing. Um, and I think, so, you know, schools, unis, hospitals, yep. most professions, yep. especially um, caring mm. professions and um, particularly emergency services, um, yeah. I don't know where you wouldn't find a chaplain really. Um mm. but I think one that- sorry.
0: The other one that's um is on my mind is military chaplains. Oh, yes. Long of history course. there. Um one of the the examples that was name checked in the start of this chapter was um my my friend Paul Cameron, who was the executive officer of Churches of Christ when I started working there. And um he's the unofficial chaplain at Richmond uh, Football Club or, yeah. or has oh, been cool. at times. Um, so, you yeah. know, football clubs uh, fo- and, and football chaplains are a well-known form of chaplaincy. Mm. At least they are in Victoria. Is that Does that translate uh, in uh, New South Wales? I mean, Wales? probably
1: I'm not deep enough in the football fields, whether yeah. it be soccer or league, <laughs> um, to know if clubs have chaplains. Um, but
0: sport, yeah, sports chaplains is yeah, a thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. I think one myth we bust bust is all chaplains are Christian because that is not the case. Mm. Um, I know at the uni I went to, there were Muslim chaplains, Jewish chaplains, yep. various forms of Christian chaplains because I will yep. include Catholics and Orthodox in Christian as well. Um, Absolutely,
0: as you well should.
1: As I well should. And I think, oh, I think Hindu maybe. I don't know if there was Buddhist. Yep. But, um, yeah, definitely chaplaincy is not just a Christian mm. thing.
0: No, no. And I think as Darren Cronshaw sort of talked about in this book um, a couple of times, the, the prevalence of chaplains kind of speaks to the- um, the thirst that people have for spirituality, that people mm. are looking for—you know—a an encounter with the divine and a sense of the world beyond the everyday—and um, yeah, chaplains are a, a really common place that people turn, and they are present in the places where people are day to day.
1: Yes, and it's less intimidating uh, talking to just like a normal person who is in your place. Mm even yep. with the label of chaplain on their name badge. Yeah. Because um, yeah. also it's sort of a chaplain can be that person between, especially in schools and stuff, it's like mm. you're not the counsellor, but you're also not a teacher. Mm. So it kind of is that, yes. bridges that space between, which can be a safe place to go, but also not. Yes. Um, and generally involved in all the same welfare spaces and all of that, but less yep. I guess of the institution, I guess in a way, which is really quite interesting, considering the history of at least Christian chaplains in Australia.
0: Yes, so one of the defining things about a a chaplain is that they are sort of part of the institution. They're they're part of the you know the sporting club, or they're they're an employee of the school, or um, they're I'm actually probably going to be wrong on this, but like somehow part of the hierarchy in a military, you know, Mm. Um, but they are, they are people that you see every day when you go to school, when you go to work. Um, They're they're people that you just encounter. And I, I think you're, you're spot on Emily. Like the, the fact that you would see them every day means that you can more naturally build a bridge with them compared to deciding, oh, I have some questions about spirituality. I'm just going to march myself into the church down the road. But the funny thing is that the example of chaplains, as we have them in Australia, is uh, not quite so rosy or friendly or accessible. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So, we're, we're moving a step forward in the, the history of Australia and we're, we've now left uh, the period of pre-invasion, pre-colonisation, and now we are- right at the start we we're, we're talking first fleet we're talking the early colonization of particularly sydney harbor and surrounding areas your your home stomping ground uh emily you were telling me just before we uh jumped on tonight that um, you've been to the places that you know the the first church built in australia and like the the oldest still standing church yeah. is that right
1: yeah 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 so there's a monument in the middle of sydney um To Richard Johnson, who was the first um, chaplain Mm. slash, I guess, clergyman to lead services or, I don't know, religious gatherings here um, in Sydney. And there's a monument to him and his first sermon um, at the site where the church was. It has since, at that point in time, it in protest, I believe, it got burnt down by convicts and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Because of stuff we'll unpack more in this chapter. Well, well um,
0: yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Um,
1: but yes, this monument is in Sydney, not too far from Wynyard Station. Yeah, because Sydney's weird and we didn't, they just sprawled out. There's no order yeah. or reason to it. But between Castle yep. Ray, Hunter, and Bly Street on the corner there is sure, the Richard sure. Johnson Obelisk. So you can actually sure, sure. go there and see it. And um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's not too far from, I think the department of New South Wales educa- education department building as mm-hmm. well. Um, yes. So yeah, I've been there. It's not too far mm. from the rocks and circular key as well. Um, oh yeah. Yes. And then the yeah. oldest still standing building church building in Australia is, um, the Ebenezer church, which is very close to where I live. It's only about 15 minutes away. And I was actually just up there the other weekend. Um, just, yeah, going for a wander and doing a bit of a prayer time up there with a friend. So that was pretty cool. Mm. Um, And, yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, it's just really interesting, I find, going to those places, especially up at Ebenezer because it's, like, Mm. high but right on the river and just the... Yeah, but for me this time it was like going there and acknowledging the significance of the land I was on and that this building wasn't always here and it was Mm. a place where um, the Darug people were long before this church was built Mm. um, and Mm. are still living in the area too and just that, yeah, this land has always been sacred land, not just since Mm. this building was built. So, yeah, yeah, on the banks of the Darugan. So, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: I made a joke earlier that- um, So, I made reference earlier to um, the chaplains and clergy being the first form of Christian witness in Australia, but that doesn't mean that they were the first form of spirituality or the first uh, presence of God here, Mm. uh, which I think you've articulated beautifully, Emily. And the complication is that um, as chaplains, as institutional clergy, the- this form of Christian witness, in its first forms with the first fleet, um, has some complications. You reference the uh, church in Sydney being uh, the, the the first church potentially having been burnt down by oh, convicts. oh no, that's what happens. Uh, so
1: there is no potential that, yeah. there.
0: Yeah, you um, you mentioned the first church in Sydney being burnt down by convicts, and I think we're, we'll ju- so we'll jump into credible witness and find out a bit about uh, a bit of why. Convicts might have wanted to burn down the church. Yes. Let's. So we're jumping in uh, with the story of Reverend Samuel Marsden, who is the second uh, clergyman to join the colony of Australia. So we've got Reverend Richard Johnson first, Reverend Samuel Marsden second. Starting on page 46. Quote. Appointed as a magistrate in Parramatta in 1795, Samuel Marsden's occasional orders for punitive whippings estranged him further from the convict population and earned him the title of the flogging parson. Marsden's biography by Alexander Yarwood departs from the usual portrait and sympathetically describes him as a severe but not cruel and heartless man. Yarwood also describes Marsden's Christian service in his preaching, teaching, caring for the sick and for Aborigines, and his enduring missionary work amongst the Maori of New Zealand. He worked under difficult conditions, often alone, and lacking government support. Nevertheless, the image of the distant and condemning flogging Parson persists, as popularised by Robert Hughes' Tendacious The Fatal Shore. Quote from The Fatal Shore. Marsden, 1764 to 1838. Oh, should we just
1: pause for a second and just give context yep. for the time? So, the First Fleet landed in Australia, or in Botany Bay in Sydney in 1788. So that's when, like, the first fleet landed. So when we're talking about mm-hmm. him being in Parramatta in 1795, that's only like what seven years after the first fleet mm. began colonising Australia or the lands we now call Australia. So this is like yeah. really, really early um, in our in the in the modern history of the, the history
0: of yeah colonised Australia. Yep. Yeah. Um, so this is the the description that Robert Hughes gives of Marsden. He is quote a grasping evangelical missionary with heavy shoulders and the face of a petulant ox and had sailed to New South Wales in seventeen ninety three as the protege of William Wilberforce, who recommended him as his assistant as the chaplain of the colony. Once there, the protege showed few of his patrons instincts to mercy but focused his considerable energies on getting land breeding sturdy Suffolk sheep, preaching hellfire sermons, and, as magistrate of Parramatta, subjecting convicts to draconic punishments, hence his name, the Flogging Parson. Now we'll return to Darren Cronshaw. Did Marsden focus on the roles of magistrate in the employ of the government and farmer in his own interests because the role of chaplain was so challenging? By most accounts, he came to enjoy the privileges not available to ordinary people and which were fit and which were, in fact, at their expense as convicts helped clear his land. Irish convicts treated badly at home did not fare any better in Australia, and Marsden did little to foster relationships of trust with them. Once he had an insurrectionist flogged with a thousand lashes to try and get the truth about other rebels out of him. Manning Clark, who had little patience for those he cynically described as harsh and legalistic life deniers who called themselves Christians, commented about the tragic witness of Marsden's inconsistency. Quote, Marsden as a magistrate had stooped to the temptation that the truth could be flogged out of a man, just as other quarters, just as in other quarters, he had also stooped to the idea that souls could be flogged away from damnation. The man who wanted to be known as the dispenser of divine love became identified with one of the most savage punishments in the early history of the colony. End quote. So, yeah, like, that's a very, look. If I'm being generous, that's a mixed picture of uh, Christian ministry in the <laughs> early colony. Mm. Um, and if I'm being a little bit more blunt, that doesn't paint Christian witness in a particularly good light.
1: No, definitely not. And it's interesting, I find, because I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, Australia is a Christian country built on Christian values. Mm. Um but when I see, like, these very – and look, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because mm-hmm. not all missionaries or not all, not all chaplains in these early days because, you know, Hashtag there were not all really- missionaries. <laughs> yeah. There were some actually genuinely really good ones that, you know, yeah. wrote down language and were translating yep. indig- into Indigenous languages and writing it down, which has actually been yep. what has then saved and meant that. Mm. First Nations people can have their language and return to them and all of that kind of stuff. So, like, that is part of the missionary story in Australia too and the, Mm. I guess, chaplain space and the the Mm. work of the church. Um, But also when these are, like, people like Marsden who are the very early kind of figureheads of God in our country at this point in time, I wonder what are the values we are actually built on if this is the sense of justice and, you know, we can flog the truth out of a person um, and Mm, mm. that kind of thing. I wonder – it makes me wonder how much of – is it a cultural mm, mythology of it and how much of – are we actually truthful in the reality of also what occurred Um, Mm. without going, I think it's without going too far either way in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But yeah, it's something that I sort of haven't reconciled myself yet. I don't think.
0: Mm. And it's, it's a tough, it's a tough line to walk because in, you know, a couple of hundred years of history and a couple of hundred years of different people bringing their different, understandings of God, their different temperaments, personalities, skills, passions, you're going to get a huge variety of expression of Christian faith um, in the same way that we have today. Like there's no reason to think that Christianity in the uh, 1700s, the late 1700s, was any less rich and complex Mm. as Christianity today. Um, Absolutely not. But what, what you get with Marsden is a really clear example of Christianity tied up to the apparatus of the state. So Marsden is not just a priest, he's not just a spiritual leader, but he's also functioning as a magistrate. He is a he's a judge, he is formally given the authority to divest punishment and sentence and all of that stuff. Mm. And there's yeah um the the early colony was looking for a form of christianity that had an emphasis on moral behavior and discipline which those things tend to mean the things that people in power want the convicts to do um which is really radically different from the Attentive spiritual companionship that was modelled by pre-invasion Aboriginal people, which we touched on in the previous chapter. Yeah, this is a this is a really different vibe of spirituality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: and that tension of being both, um, you know, at, at their best spiritual companions and also having. Obligation to the institution is one of the tensions at the heart of um, chaplaincy, mm. and I, and I think that still that still remains. Um, mm. As someone who has looked at chaplaincy from the outside and not done it, um, but you know, it still seems to be there. But you talked a little bit there, Emily, about um, cultural myths um, and. Darren Cronshaw picks up uh, one of the key myths of Australia as well. So let's let me read a paragraph from Credible Witness, and then we can come back and sort of unpack that idea of a cultural myth a little bit more.
2: Mm.
0: So, still on page forty-seven. Quote: The cultural value of a fair go has its roots in convict experience. It is unfortunate that this may have been partly directed against early clergy. A fair go is an abbreviation of the convict cry, fair crack of the whip. It stands for justice and asserts that people should be treated apart from racial, political, religious or socio- and socio-economic district. Discrimination. Australia is not the only culture to stand up for equal treatment, but Australians particularly value standing up with courage for the rights of victims of any discrimination. Convicts had enough of moralistic crusades and injustice. Many were transported because of political misdemeanours or wrongful accusations. Then, in the early colony, convicts resented inequ- inequities in treatment and forms of punishment. In the midst of their punishment and afterwards, as they sought fresh starts, they longed for a fair go and sought to give a fair go to others, end quote. Mm. So, just something we skipped over last fortnight when we did the, the introduction to this book was um, a bit of discussion about what it means to have a cultural mythology. and. Basically, you know, it's it's not, um, it's not mythology in the sense of, you know, gods and monsters and epic heroes like in Greek myths and Norse myths or anything like that. It's more just what are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves? How do we understand ourselves? Um, if someone asks you, what does it mean to be Australian? Your answer is going to draw on, uh, you know unless you, your answer is, oh, well, you have uh, formal citizenship with the federal government of Australia, and you go through this process and fill in these forms to get that, you know, your your answer of what it means to be Australian is going to draw on our shared understanding of who we are, which is informed by our cultural myths. And that myth of the fair go is really key. And when I describe it as a myth, I'm not inherently saying that it's not true, um, but it is a Repeated story that we tell ourselves. Mm. Um, so, what do you what do you reckon?
1: Yeah, Emily? it's so interesting. Is it true? <laughs> well, that's the hard question about this one, isn't it? Because I think, like in t- terms of what Darren's talking about, there absolutely there's a bit of that in it for the little guy. We love a good underdog, mm. you know. We love a good underdog, but, you know. The we the hate castle, tall poppies. The castle is like the an castle. iconic Australian movie. Right. And that's all about the underdog and the vibe of the thing. And
0: in so far as Australia has an Iliad and an Odyssey and a foundational mythic text, it's the castle.
1: It's the castle along with the Anzac <laughs> mythology. And
0: yeah, that's probably um, right. Hey? Yeah.
1: <laughs> but yes. Modern- <laughs> and Eureka modern Stockade. Uh, yes. Uh, 20th century Australia. <laughs> oh, no, not even. Late 20th century Australia built on Um but just when it comes to – but I wonder as well if it's got to do with this thing of, like, this fair go, yes, absolutely, and all about, you know, give everyone a fair go. But mm. when it comes down to it at, like, institutional levels or people in power and not in power, do we really realistically give people a fair go? Um, yeah. Because I look at things like our – um Just different, I mean, the treatment of our First Nations people for the last 250-ish years, um, not a fair go. I look at, Mm. well, treatment of convicts, not a fair go. Well- yeah, not a fair go. Um
0: not a fair go. I I think <laughs> I think we can fairly confidently say that the treatment of convicts transports to Australia was not a fair go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um I just have to think it through for a second before I yeah. um
0: <laughs> Whatever whatever your views on incarceration and uh, yes. and punitive justice systems, this was overstep.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, then we look at, you know, different things like our White Australia policy and just yeah. General cultural, at least from a white Australian um, kind of place, the treatment and mm. just the cultural justification for racism. With I'm not racist, yeah. but um,
0: I'm not racist, but
1: social welfare, so like Centrelink and different things mm. like that, and mm. just even yeah. the the dialogue and the discourse you get around that. Oh. With things like terms like doll bludgers or people are just lazy or like that kind of yeah. stuff. I just go, are we really mm. about giving people a fair go or mm. where are we okay with giving people a fair go? And we need to take a look at some facts where we the are question. not okay with yeah. giving people a fair go and why is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And so a, a key piece of that paragraph that we just read was that- um that sense of a fair go largely emerged in opposition to the 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 let's you know name it for what it is the christian witness of the early clergy and the early chaplains um we today probably don't think of it as particularly good christian witness but that's what it was um so i'm going to pick up Following on from the bit that we just read, and read another couple of paragraphs, um, starting again on page forty-seven. Quote: Unfortunately, Johnson, Marsden, and later other clergy were viewed as moral policemen by the convicts and necessary nuisances by some of the authorities. Informing a new society in critical sorry, informing a new society, a critical question Australia faced was whether the was where the necessary discipline was to come from. There were limited options, and the choice fell on evangelical Protestantism, which the government sought to utilize for its purpose. Whether or not the government wanted the religious influence, they needed the discipline, and so they took both. In time, the religion and discipline were molded together, and Christianity came to be perceived as discipline. There is evidence of certain chaplains being popular because of their pity or willingness to sacrifice. So those are good examples of chaplains that we sort of haven't looked at in detail yet continuing the quote but some of the positive esteem directed to chaplains is suspect because the approval of chaplains was needed for convicts to be freed or receive special treatment one of the characters in jeffrey hamlin described the source of anti-clericalism that many bush workers showed quote because when they're in prison all their indulgences and half their hopes for liberty depend on how far they can manage to humbug the chaplain with false piety End quote. So, that to me really just articulates probably the key tension in what chaplaincy has been. And so, when we're looking at, you know, what are the models that we can learn from in Australian history, something we need to grapple with around chaplains is that they are accountable to institutions as well as to God and or the church, depending on how you look at it. Um and I, That's a really tough spot to be at. like I, mm. reading this chapter and I, and I don't think where I, I don't think I've picked the sections that really draw this out. So do encourage, as always, people to go and read the whole chapter. Um, but I'm, I'm left with a f- reasonable amount of sympathy for the position that those early clergy were in um, because like tough gig. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well- <laughs> tough
0: to navigate. The, the competing obligations.
1: Look, that hasn't really changed um, Yeah, in the sense that I know um, at different points in time, you know, there's different things about school chaplains. I, I use school chaplains as the example. But that's the one I'm most mm. familiar with. Um The form Me too. of chaplaincy yeah. I'm most familiar with and chaplains in state schools and, you know, the ability to be able to provide, um, I guess, spiritual – companionship or spiritual direction or um, mm. Christian programs or, you know, faith-based programs and stuff. Um, yeah. There's limits to what you're able to do in that space because of mm. the accountability to the government institutions as well as mm. the the church. And I think often for chaplains, I can't speak for all chaplains, but I can imagine that can be a challenging tension to hold Mm. because, you know, evangelism and that is kind of the church's aim, but then you're held into this framework and system where you can't always do that. And for some people that's, like, great because it's liberating and freeing and you can kind of be a way to express your faith in a way that isn't necessarily about talking about it, but then that can also be really Mm. challenging because you might not. Straight up be allowed to talk as openly about it as you'd like, but I think also in the same time mm. of that, like you kind of, if you're a chaplain, people kind of get a vibe for what you're for, so you kind of straight yeah. out of the gates with it anyway. Like you, people know where you yeah. stand when it comes to, yeah. like you get it's be kind a of in the name, faith, isn't right? it? Um, yeah, yeah, so, so it kind of, yeah, while it can seemingly be something that limits it's actually you know you straight away and this is where i stand you don't have to like people don't need to try and figure it out and i mean that can be challenging as well because then people sometimes have i guess maybe preconceived ideas or notions or negative things around that as well um that you kind of got to work through too but Yeah, it's just interesting and, you know, the fact that even I know in New South Wales a lot of chaplains and, oh, I don't know if Queensland, but definitely New South Wales because that's the system I'm mostly connected with now, Mm -hmm. Um, there's government funding provided for chaplaincy as well. So Mm. that's that tension of holding the state, church and state um, in terms of, well, you're funded by the government so you've got to follow the rules and regulations, but the church is also a major funding part of our chaplains get in schools and in other places too.
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, one of the things Darren says about this tension is, um, "quote, chaplains have a responsibility to contribute to institutional goals and strive for pre- strive for professional excellence. Yet they'll minister most effectively if they can maintain some independence from the institution mm. and its secular agenda." Um. And I think ultimately where where we kind of land in this is that um, there's huge value in having spiritually attentive people available to everyone at all times of life, um, even or even especially in the worst times of life, including imprisonment, as we're seeing in the, uh, the th- stories of the first fleet, um, but also in ill health. Um, you know, hospital chaplains are a really big- modern part of uh, Christian ministry. Mm. Um, you know, in the everyday ins and outs of being at school, it's useful and good to have those spiritually attentive people around um, that people can draw on when they need. Um, so, we've looked at, you know, the the initial chaplains, um, and not all of it has been great. I don't think you and I, Emily, have- been like, okay, everyone needs to be a uh, Samuel Marston and (laughs)
2: um,
0: pick up a magistrate's job as Mm -hmm. well as a ministry job. But now we're going to dive into um, Darren unpacking some of the good modern approaches to chaplaincy, which don't look exactly how we've been talking. Um, They've they've been modernised and been I think, improved and also adds some nuance and some complexity in a uh, post-Christendom society. So, I'm going to jump ahead to page 53. Quote, Pastoral leaders work alongside and care for people when they function as chaplains, but they also have a chaplaincy role of evangelism in communicating the truths of Christianity to people who have not yet responded to God. 21st Christian, sorry, 21st century Australian churches need pastoral ministers who lead their congregations in outreach and do the work of an evangelist. A helpful framework for a pastor's evangelism is for them to view their role as chaplain to their broader community. This can cause conflict with the local church. There's sometimes a challenge of ministry identity when churches want their pastor to be chaplain for their religious club, a club that is furthermore fussy about whom it welcomes into membership. The traditional Anglican notion of a parish as a geographical area rather than a gathered congregation helped avoid a club mentality because the pastoral minister had the cure of souls over a wider constitu- consti- there. over a wider consti- constituency? Constituency. 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 Thank you. You're constituency. Putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah. <laughs> Because the pastoral minister had the cure of souls over a wider constituency than just the church members. Ideally, chaplaincy is a mission model for taking the resources of the church beyond itself. Pastors and churches need a broader identity than chaplain to the converted and a wider concern than parish affairs. The role of official chaplains in Australian industry, schools, defence force and even shopping centres is commendable for evangelical for evangelistically taking Christianity beyond the walls of the church. More informally, some ministers allocate time and commit to walking around their neighbourhood or taking an interest in community issues in order to build relationships and express care. Graham Nielsen, recently retired pastor at Kilsyth South Baptist Church in Melbourne, distributed posters to factories in the vicinity of the church which offered counselling and practical care to anyone in need. The conversations with workers as he distributed the posters were just as valuable as the contacts the posters established. Chaplains can minister as evangelists, but if they identify with the establishment, as in colonial days, or are preoccupied with people already in the church, while most Australians rarely enter church, then they, then they neglect an important aspect of ministry. There is also ambivalence in chaplaincy about the place of evangelism. Theological and strategic difference of opinion among Australian Christians has sometimes polarised those committed to evangelism or chaplaincy. Within chaplaincy, moreover, there are those who see chaplaincy as service and those who advocate the role of the chaplain as primarily evangelistic, influenced by the leadership of the Anglican Diocese of Sydney. And other leaders elsewhere, Darren, but that's okay. The context of chaplaincy is different today from colonial days. In colonial days, many convicts were antagonistic, but it could be assumed that most had some Christian background. Issues of religious pluralism did not apply as they do today. The chaplain led worship, administered the sacraments, and talked with people hoping to lead them to greater faith. Today, chaplains have a responsibility not just to the religious, but also the apathetic and hostile, those who hold and those who hold other religions. Hooker and Lamb advocate bridge-building and mutual understanding between Christian ministers and people of other faiths and suggest models like the loiterer, spending time with people, problem solver, helping with local knowledge and services, ritual specialist, celebrating milestones, and explorer, being fascinated by culture and language learning. Cultural sensitivity is shown by presence and dialogue that seeks first to listen and to understand the community. Chaplaincy has a unique role in these aspects of evangelism because of the proximity it gives people. It gives to people beyond the normal activities of church life. Evangelism in Australia today needs to be culturally appropriate. One drawback of the evangelistic mission in the early colonial days was its reliance on British and German models of ministry. Christianity was planted and propagated by pastoral leaders who were often homesick and had little interest in developing local forms of church life. Colonial pastors had been trained in England and most were evangelical, a tradition that Griffin suggests paid least attention to context, though this was not a limitation unique to evangelicals. Quote, ministry in Australia was not seen as significantly different in its demands than ministry elsewhere on a God's earth. End quote. Yeah, lots to, lot to unpack there. But I think that image of modern chaplaincy in Australia, um, the the four approaches that towards the end of that section was really the bit that jumped out to me. Um, The idea of a chaplain or a minister being, or, or, you know, or an ordinary person, an ordinary Christian person being a loiterer, a problem solver, someone who specialises in marking significant milestones um, and someone who is committed to exploring culture and connecting with people of other faiths and other backgrounds I think that that's really encouraging and I think that that push that chaplaincy has to be outside the walls of the church um is hugely hugely valuable for the for the for
1: the broader church mm. Oh absolutely, and I think it's really interesting, like what I found really fascinating. Um, I mean, there was two things. I'll start with this first one and then we can jump to the second one. But the framework in which a pastor's evangelism to the community needs to – like broader community needs to be different to then the the expectation of pastoring Mm. to the church Um, Mm. and, you know, that they need to also not just be, you know, a chaplain for the religious club that, you know, it's about Mm. going out and modelling that as well. So that's Mm. a really – I think interesting and important thing to highlight, and Mm. then I don't know, explore, (laughs) unpack.
2: um, Yeah, well, it's it's a a challenge, or
1: encourage people to allow. I guess like a senior minister, senior pastor, space to be Mm. more than just the senior pastor for the church. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely, hundred percent and it's it's also um just as much a challenge to the um lay people in the church the people who aren't in formal ministry roles or people who are in um volunteer roles um you know something that i've often observed and uh frustrates me to no end is how um inward focused churches can yeah. can become because you know I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, Emily, and you experienced this um, in your your ministry role, I'm sure, but like running a church takes a lot of time and energy. So much time and and energy. So much time and energy. And if there's not some real care taken, um, that that energy that it takes to just, you know, keep the lights on, to get the service running, to uh, make sure the coffee is ready for the morning tea, that can um, take up, all of someone's time mm. and leave nothing for you know God building God's God's kingdom building beyond those walls. Mm. Um, and you know, churches churches are fabulous, but they are they're there to be of service and support to the neighbourhood, not just as as Darren said, the the, the insular religious club, um, which is yeah a tough thing to hear. <laughs>
1: yeah because that absolutely. can sometimes
0: really be what churches are,
1: yeah because it's easy to be this is my safe space, this is where my people are yeah. um, yeah. I align with these people, and yes yeah. that's really nice to have those spaces too, like
0: and essential to have and essential. it's essential. Re- humans need that stuff to flourish
1: absolutely, so yeah, yeah that's yeah. um, but yeah, I wonder what our churches would look like if. We led mm. from a place of looking outwards instead of looking inwards.
2: Because
1: mm. um, yeah, just be really mm. yeah. How how would it change what we do and how we do what we do?
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Which
1: I mean, I feel like we've been talking about for the last what eighteen months in this podcast. In I
0: mean, that's days. that's the central question um, of of. Of missiology yeah. of the of the kind of stuff that we're we're talking about that's that's the central question of mission. Um, yeah,
2: you
0: know, if you're if you're someone who's interested in in mission, in justice, in advocacy, these are the um, this is the, this is at the core of it. How do we how do our how does our faith go beyond the the four walls of the church?
1: Yeah, um, in a practical yeah. sense, as much in as much as a. Evangelistic sense, evangelism yes. in the way I'm using it, being yep. the spreading of the word in the sense of the Bible, or
0: yeah, the the, the simple the simple preaching of the yeah. the death and resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yep. there's got to be more to it. There's got to be a transformation of of people individually, but also society and structures and, collective and, and groups
1: um, of people too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. So the other bit, which this kind of leads into is this idea of evangelism in Australia needing to be culturally mm. appropriate and just so fascinating i think that was like the last cha- uh, the last paragraph you read um because that's something i've been really fascinated and interested in and just like i don't know i think for me in the last like year or so looking for some language around it and what is it but then like just sort of being in the back of my mind in terms of what is a uniquely australian church and what does that look like, mm. not as a byproduct of England or the UK or of America mm. or of,
2: yeah.
1: I don't know, um, Germany or, like, Netherlands or wherever, like, everyone sort of comes from. What does it look like yeah. here in our context, in our place, to be us as the church? Um And so interesting, just the fact that um, Darren here is talking about, you know, colonial pastors um, have been trained in England and literally sent over here on a boat. And Mm. then from that, there's almost this, like, homesickness and yearning and longing for what the known is and what people know. And that's why-
0: Which, again, is very- Look like they do. Very easy to be sympathetic with. Which, oh,
1: absolutely. Like, you go away from home, go somewhere else and- yeah, just being in a different place is like so challenging, and especially, mm. I mean, I think for European people coming to Australia in those early days, um, mm. you know, it's not built up like it is now. There were no buildings, especially in Sydney. It's all like tents and stuff, and like clearing mm. the land. Mm. And I, I'm not. I don't want to glorify this because I don't think, you know, we we acknowledge that these lands that we now call Australia have never been ceded, and were people, Mm. First Nations people were here and were caring for country as it was. But, Mm. like, the way it's like you come into a place where you come from, say, England, um, London, and, you know, built up buildings and you come to this place and there's supposedly no one around except for the people you've come with and... It's all marshy and bushy and sandy and hilly, and there's just not much around. And there's like no farming land, and there's no buildings. There's like nothing familiar. It'd be like grasping mm. on for what you mm. know mm. as much as anything yeah. else, because yeah. we're creatures. But of at the least habit. I know the hymns. Yeah, at least we know the yeah. hymns. At least, yeah, um, at least for those probably clergy. Clergymen and things like that, because it's like, yeah. how do I? I don't even know this place. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah,
0: but the but the challenge that faced yes. them and continues to face us and will continue to face everyone, because culture is a, is an ever shifting beast. Is how do we authentically live out our faith in a culturally informed way? Yes. How do we? What is an authentic? Australian spirituality.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, yes, I guess to round out my point, I'll, I'll circle back and land the plane. Um, <laughs> that, exactly that, and this is where that's come from, and that's part of why things look like the way they do. And, mm. yeah, then exactly your question then, Mitch, how do we shift that into something that is uniquely Australian? And... Uniquely, spiritually mm. Australian here where we are now.
0: Hmm. Absolutely. So look, for some listening and reading along, um, the model of chaplaincy might be part of that. Um, being present where people are in their everyday life, being present alongside people in schools, prisons, uh, the military, wherever. Um yeah, look, if that if that has been resonating with you as you've been listening or reading, I um, do encourage you to um yeah, spend some time thinking, praying, journaling and chatting with people about that.
1: Yeah. Um, and like yeah, not only just if yeah. you hear something and you go, Oh, that's kind of interesting, like it's I feel like chaplaincy one of those is one of those things like I've personally never been a chaplain. Um mm. but I've grown up with a parent who was a school chaplain for 12 years. So I'm.
0: You have a level of familiarity. I've got a level
1: of familiarity with chaplaincy in that kind of context, but even like different types of chaplaincy. So like prison chaplaincy as you were talking about or like school chaplaincy or um, even working with emergency services. So like RFS and. Yep. SES and paramedics, and I'm sure the police have chaplains mm. and, um yep. you know, fire and rescue as well. Um But, like, go if you're interested or, like, you're curious, find the chaplains in those services and talk to them about it because, like, mm. I know people in my church, that we've got, like, a prison chaplain, and just hearing some of his stories are pretty cool. And, like, my church actually has people that go into one of the local prisons, um, I want to say at least monthly and, like, runs church services and stuff, so, like, supporting chaplaincy in different ways as well. Um, And just, I mean, I've not actually personally been involved in that ministry, but, like, it's really interesting and fascinating and sometimes you don't know what you don't know until you try and explore it a little bit. Like dip mm, your toe in, yeah, um, and like you yeah. might dip your toe in and be like, "Oh, this is definitely not for me, um, or you <laughs> might dip your toe in and be like, "Oh, I kind of like that aspect of it, um, but I'm not a big fan of this aspect of it, so you'd like try somewhere else. But you know, there might be actually opportunities in your local community in different places like that that you might just not even be aware of until you look them out and ask the questions.
0: So Emily, on that note. What are you going to continue to wrestle with from this chapter?
1: Oh, look, honestly, I think I've probably already spoken about it, but it's that, and I'll probably continue to speak about this for this whole book because I think it's Mm. the vibe of this book, is that exploring Mm. what a uniquely Australian Christian spirituality and faith is in the place, in the lands we are in, um, that is influenced but not defined by the places
2: over there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's good.
0: What
1: about you, yeah.
2: Mitch?
0: I think for me, the question of how, um, how I and we can continue to be of service and present sort of in the everyday spaces um, in the, the spaces that kind of aren't set aside to be spiritual special places, but are just mundane, boring places. Um, You know, what does it look like for us to be really practically serving there and also, yeah, just pointing people towards God? Um, Yeah. So, Emily, have you got a benediction for us tonight?
1: I sure do. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. It is in pardoning that we pardon, and it is in dying that we will be born to eternal life. Amen. Amen.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. We'll be back in two weeks uh, on February 21st for the next chapter of Credible Witness, which is titled Shepherds for Settlers. We're going a little bit further forward in the uh, story of Australia and pulling out a new model that we can be inspired, encouraged by. Um, If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, we record all of our episodes in community on Discord. So feel free to join us at embody.org.au slash Discord, um, where you can join in the chat as we record. If you've been listening along and you've thought of someone who you think would really enjoy listening to the conversation, I encourage you to send them a link, uh, hit that share button in whatever podcasting app you're using. Uh, But yeah, we'll see you back here on the 21st for the next chapter of Credible Witness.
1: See ya. Podcast by Embody. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review so more people can find us. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Every episode of Reading Mission is recorded live in our Discord server. So if you ever want to join in the live discussion and connect with other people exploring mission, justice, and social change together, head to embody.org.au forward slash Discord to join in. Embody is a national community of young people passionate about mission locally, nationally, and globally. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at EmbodyAU and visit our website at embody.org.au. All the links are in the show notes. Embody is part of the Global Mission Partners family. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia and pay respects to elders past and present. We recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. Music in the show is by Josh Woodward and we'll catch you next time and thanks heaps for listening to Reading Mission.